I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Going Off Track. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yes, it is Brad and Jonah. The Brad and Jonah Show. I feel like we find ourselves here doing these intros it's pleasant. so often. It's nice, yes. Um, oh, I was going to, I should have offered, do you want a beer? I mean, I don't know, you just came from the dentist, maybe you don't want a beer. <laughs> yeah, not really. Okay. Next time you're here, though, I, I found out that when I was home for Thanksgiving that my, my hometown is home to like... My, my tiny little shitty hometown in the middle of Central Mass is home to like the best beer in the world. What is it called? It's called Treehouse. Interesting. It's this, and the only way you can get it is to go to the brewery and stand in line and buy it. Really? Yeah. My stepbrother gave it to me during Thanksgiving. It was delicious. And so, the, and you still have some left? I went and bought, yeah, I bought like over a case. Oh, nice. I, st- I couldn't believe I went and stood in line. It wasn't a very long line, but, uh, it's really good. Man, now I kind of want one. I thought you were just going to offer me like a PBR no, or something. I was like, I, I'll save some for you if you don't. Because I realize me. you're, you know. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. You, you don't want to mix that stuff. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't, I mean, they didn't give me anything other than just a shot into my gums. Um, but. It might it, affect the flavor. I don't want to waste it on Yeah, you. I also ate the, one of those like Zycam zinc oh, things. No, forget it. Forget it. And I'll that, save you a beer. You know, it's funny. I ate because I, <laughs> I thought I was getting cold, so I bought all these zinc things. And you know, they make everything taste terrible. Yes. So I had one, and then I bought these like a case of these protein bars. And I had one. I was like, these things are disgusting. I can't believe I have a whole case of them. And then I had one yesterday, and I was like, these are delicious. But I just, you know. <laughs> Dude. So, so, so I actually, to, speaking of beer and zinc. Oh, God. <laughs> one time I went into Niagara and I, after I'd taken one of those zinc tablets, I forgot about I it. I, have I heard this story? <laughs> and you kept that. sending back like nine I, beers? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you've told this story before. Because the zinc, you know when you have a really dirty tap? Yes. It tastes like, that's what it tastes like. Yeah, it's weird. And it stays with you for a while. Yeah, it's... it's. I should get the spray or something. Well... I feel like no matter what you do, though, that it's, the, the shit that really makes it taste bad, those big tablets, those yeah. are the best ones. That's what I, that's you can what get I've been, Zycam or whatever, and it doesn't affect the flavor of things as much, but I don't think it works as well either. Yeah, mine definitely. Yeah, it's gross. But so I read this article, I don't know if you saw this, where um, they suggested to the MTA shutting down 24 hour subway service in general. What? Between like 12.30 and 5 a.m. because like only one and a half percent of subway riders use the train during those hours. 
And I felt like last week we were talking about the net neutrality Holy thing. And to shit. me, like, this is another issue where it's like... They're going to make us into Boston? Well, yeah, dude, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's like... But it's also like, what about people that work in industries? Like, late, like it's like, just because not a lot of people use it doesn't mean, like, those people should just be totally this negated. fucking New York City, man. I know, I know. This is what makes New York, is you can ride the fucking subway at 4 o'clock in the morning. Brad, I know, man. But even, I mean, the subway now, even, like, the L train, like, you know, like, it's shut, not running past Lorimer Monday through Wednesday for a couple weeks, and I had to take a shuttle, but, like, I feel like the MTA is, like, really, really broke, and Dude. they're just, like, looking for ways to save money. Um, Infrastructure is falling apart. It is falling apart. We're going to return to the 70s. Maybe it'll be cool here again. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it'll get cheaper here. No, never happened. Yeah, I just feel like things are going to get... Less the infrastructure cool. is going to get worse, and it's just going to stay expensive. Yeah. Not a good combination, Brad. Not a good one. No. Sorry to hear about that. Yeah. I hope so, it doesn't happen. I kind of think it's one of those. I don't think it'll... I mean, de Blasio says it won't happen. I think someone just kind of suggested it. Right. But, I mean, I would put nothing it's, past. I mean, it literally is kind of what makes New York, New York. Yeah. Is a 24-hour subway. Yes. So, if that's gone, I might have to go too, man. Yeah. Just, just telling you. Just warn it. Putting that out there. New, that's gonna, that's New gonna York influence. City. Have you heard this? <laughs> Brad is not messing around. You could lose one of yeah. your best residents. Yeah. If you shut down the 24 hour subway, yeah. that's it. I might be I'm with you, here. Brad. All right. I might be with you. Fuck, fuck you. So, <laughs> anyways, uh, all right. Today in the podcast, uh, we have someone I met uh, last year, uh, Franz Nikolai. He uh, was in World Inferno Friendship Society. You may also know him as. Uh, playing keys and other instruments in the hold steady and he is also an incredible writer um he wrote a book a memoir about touring um the humorless ladies of border control yes that is what it's called just it's worth reading just for the title itself yes and it's about his international kind of travels and uh it's tour stories tour stories um, but yeah, very, told in a very interesting way. There's kind of a preview up on Noisy. I remember that we kind of talk about, but yeah, we talk about some of those stories in the podcast, but if they interest you, you should just go out and buy the book. Um, I know it's, I checked it's available on Amazon and Franz is a very, very intelligent guy with a lot of really interesting stories. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, so yeah, Franz, uh, lives upstate, but he came down to this podcast so at thank pulse you to music. him at pulse music <laughs> thank you brad yeah so thank you to pulse music um if you're wondering why the podcast sounds so good it's because of pulse music and because it's recorded in a professional facility it is with steve grawalski so thank you to steve for staying late letting us do this podcast thank you franz for coming in i know the whole study just played like four shows in new york um sort of celebrating the holidays so uh yeah all those old hold state records are great um world inferno friendship society also an amazing band and uh yeah franz is always guesting on people's stuff so yeah if you just kind of google him you can check it out uh see what he's up to but yeah let's get into it right now uh this is one we've wanted to do for a while so uh let's do it with uh franz from the hold steady i'm going off track Do you think if I really wanted to get into Princeton right now, like, what? how long would it take me to get into Princeton if I was, like, fully committed to the process? Depends how what long? you wanted to go for. Yeah. Uh, no, just to get in. How did you, how did you test when you were, like, in high school? I, the SATs are okay. 
my class rank and things of that nature were poor. I think your best bet is going to be honorary degree. <laughs> <laughs> but what do I have to do to get that? To get an honorary degree? I don't know. From you to, Princeton, you have to do yeah. I don't think they do that at Princeton. What my sister's... I might get one from, like, I don't know, Montclair <laughs> State or something. But I'm not... Princeton doesn't Morris give Morris County. It. Yeah. They don't even have enough, like, real ones to give My it. sister went to an Ivy League school, and her speaker was Bono. And they gave him one. Mm. So you just need to get to Bono level. Bono gets everything. That's You're like close. Mine was Quincy Jones. Really? Really? Yeah. That's, That's a pretty good one. A good that was one. a good one. He uh, must have more than one. Mine had a similar name. Mine was James Earl Jones. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and at the end, he said, let the force be with you. Wait, what schools did you guys go to? <laughs> NYU. NYU. Ithaca College. It, James Earl Jones did Ithaca? Yeah. And Is you know, he just from there? Uh, no, we got him. The year before, we got uh, a little duo known as Ben and Jerry. They get paid for this? <laughs> they definitely get paid oh, for yeah. that. You get paid for college? I think college? you get paid a lot. Like, like so is this a thing, like, grand. during graduation season, there's, like, a speaker circuit? Oh. It, like, I a whole met, thing? It seems like there's, it. Yeah. There's speakers all year. And what Ivy different. League is, like, the the job to get, like, Bono or, like, I think Jimmy so, Carter These schools have a lot of money in the budget, so I think it's, right. yeah. So, what, what, Jonah, so we gotta we gotta finger off this uh, honorary degree from Princeton. So that's not realistic. So say, so say, I put my kids in daycare, no job. We're not talking money is no of no consequence right now. Okay, and I'm just fully dedicated to this. Like, what do I gotta do to get into Princeton? Like, I think it really depends on what pro- what program you would want to go. Right, like if you wanted to go for creative writing study with eugenities right just like write a bunch of short stories yeah oh like so go more in my body of work you you i was thinking more like grinding it out at community college with like a four you gotta go you gotta go like we've never seen anything like this before this guy was a drummer in a band but he writes these amazing stories and it's like just weird i feel like you know being coming at it you know slightly later in life and from a very interesting you know life background I think that counts, you know. You're like towards uh, my honorary degree, towards or just like my diversity, into the towards your diversity cred. Yeah. I think you start in some sort of like adult school situation, like a part time. Yeah. You eke your way in there. That's yeah. what I think. Yeah, I was thinking more uh, in like a Rudy Rudiger sort of way that I'm gonna like, <laughs> you know, grind it out at the small schools and really prove my worth. I'll do landscaping. With Rock, the guy who played Rock. <laughs> I thought that was the And you know, you also, no? it also requires what they, what I think the technical term is a shit ton of money. Oh, I thought you were going to say intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> like, shit. No, anybody can go that. to college. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of money to go to Princeton. Yeah. What, 60, 80 grand? Something? I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, that, but the percentage of people who are paying sticker price on a situation <laughs> like that is pretty, pretty small. That's a lot of, a lot uh, of scratch. Yes. Um... So, Franz, thanks for coming by. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for your input on this. I figured this was one of those situations where it starts rolling. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. Um, this is important stuff. It is important stuff. What are we going to talk about? Music? Yeah. yeah. It's up to you. Yeah. Um, so, what's going on? I'll so talk you, about whatever. <laughs> you uh, doped up on cold medicine. Are you? Yeah. Oh, nice. No. I like it. Um, do you like cold medicine? Yeah, I do like cold medicine. Like, we, we talked like about this last, last week. I'm yeah. pretty sure we got into this last podcast. <laughs> we talked a lot Jonah about robo-tripping. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're living upstate. Do you, do, were, were you here before? when? Did you move from here? Um, in the long term, yeah. I mean, I okay. was here for 17 years, 
And then my wife's an academic, so after she finished her her PhD, we bounced around for a couple of years following her career. We were in Toronto for a year and Boston for a semester and then back here, and then she got a job up at Bard, so we moved up there four years ago. Gotcha. Yeah, i am just recently been kind of introduced to the academic world, and it's it. I've noticed like that's kind of how it's like wherever you get the job, that's kind of where you have to. Well, they make a lot of PhDs and they don't make a lot of professorships. So (laughs) you take what you can get. And a lot of them are in, you know, Indiana or, you know, North Dakota. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been lucky. That's really lucky. Yeah. Did you like, did you like Boston? I wasn't crazy about Boston. I love Toronto. Yeah. I would have, if it was an option to stay there, I would have stayed there in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I I love Toronto. Toronto's. I've always thought of Toronto as my second choice to New York. If I had to leave New York, isn't it where they film movie movie sequences for Vancouver? Cheaper? It's Vancouver. Oh, it's Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. No, Toronto is is Toronto is like they got they got great food. Everybody's. It's. I mean, it's a, it's really a cliche to to say how nice Canadians are. Yeah. But I, I'll put it this way: I went up there like within the first week. I had to go get. I had to go to the city hall to get a parking permit and some other stuff. And I got there at like, I would say quarter to five. And if you can imagine getting to city hall in, in, in down, like borough <laughs> hall at quarter to five and trying to get somebody to give you some permits and stuff, like no. forget about it. Yeah. And it was like walking into a Montessori school, <laughs> nice carpeting, like soft light. I got up to the woman's counter and she was like, Oh, welcome to Canada. <laughs> she knew How long are you going to be yeah. here? I was like, don't you, you got to go soon. Let's <laughs> get this processed, you know? Yeah. Uh, well-funded government, huh? Love it. Is that what could happen? Uh, Is that happens when you decide to go into social services? Well, it's fifteen dollars for a six pack. That's that's how it gets funded. Even a Labatt? Yeah. The oh, beer is really expensive. Yeah. The booze is oh. expensive. But I got, a, you know, I got glasses. I got, you know, you could get a, a, a massage every couple yeah. months on the on the government. Whoa. Listen, you can always make gin in a bathtub. All this other stuff is hard to get. All this business mm-hmm. that people, you know, you hear people saying, oh, the Canadians coming down here for our health care. It's like, no fucking way, no. man. Yeah. It's <laughs> heaven on earth up there. That's crazy. Talk. Were you playing music up there? <clears throat> Not much. Yeah. Not much. That was I had I had a fresh baby, and so okay. I was sort of like staying home with the kid and re- reassessing my life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> undergoing an existential crisis. I understand. Is you know, that how you get into a lot of the writing stuff? I saw you're doing reviewing and things. Is that something you can do remote? And that's well, that's when I wrote my book. Basically, mm-hmm. was during that that period. That's okay. when I finished my book. And you did some really long essays, sort of for noisy around that time, or is that? They ran uh, uh, the last section of my book okay. as a, in three parts. Got it. Basically, the the when I was in Ukraine after the the Maidan revolution. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was so that was, I was there in 2014. Uh, so I guess Toronto in 2015 is when I was writing the book. So were you like, what was your kind of routine like? Did you have like a set time each day where you would sit down and work on it, or? Well, I had a well, you had a baby. I had too, a ba- I guess. baby yeah. under a year old, so routines. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, to be honestly, what I did is I is I quit drinking for a while and wrote at night. Yeah, mm. that was, I found that to be really effective. Um, was I it was, something that would like help, like relax you at night instead of drinking? Like, no, was it was it? just that was the time that was available. Oh, okay. And so if I yeah. if I hadn't had a couple of drinks with dinner, I could concentrate with my sure, concentrate sure, on, sure, my, sure. on my book. Um, what I was doing during the day, I mean, I was I was working as a piano tuner. 
um, just sort of like hung up my Craigslist. Well, they don't have Craigslist up there, but the the, the Toronto version of Craigslist and ride, biking around tuning the the you know the horrible beat up spinets of of Toronto. How did you um, learn how to do that? I. It was just one of those things I picked up because I was a musician and I needed a portable skill that I could do to, you know, patch over the months off here and there. Wow. Like piano tuning and bartending. Um, and piano tuning is a the the hours are more forgiving than yeah. bartending. So can I ask you, so piano tuning seems to be... Like, not that easy, right? It seems that when you hire a piano tuner, it's kind of I think like, it's magic. It is, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like totally, calling a, a surgeon. Yeah. It is. If you hire a real piano... I was a hack piano tuner. <laughs> let, me, let me be clear. Get an iPhone app. There are people who, um, who, who train for three and four years to be yeah, that's piano technicians and can, can rebuild pianos and do all sorts of things like that. I can tune your piano, you know? So I mean, it's not like tuning a guitar, Because it's like the right? compensated... You have to compensate for. That's right. There's a. There's a. There's a. There's a. You know the the ed, the edges curve sharp and there's yeah. a, there's there's um it's yeah yes. so it's not <laughs> a short answer. It's let's magic. not let's not go deep into the weeds of because <laughs> there's a piano in there we could check it out you could give us a demo. Well, I did imagine from like my like ogre drummer brain. I imagine I'm like oh well there are strings and then they each have a note. And that's how you would tune a it's, piano. It's probably closer to yeah. tuning drums than a oh, guitar. Okay. It is, cl- yeah, because that makes well, sense. first of all, the, so you got eighty-eight keys. That do- that doesn't mean there's eighty-eight strings. There's a lot more than that because right, there's right. the low ones are one string. The whole middle register is is three strings, mm. uh, 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 one string, two strings, th- up to up to three strings for most of it. And so you sort of you sort you tune the 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 quick and dirty way to do it is to turn uh, uh, in each trio you tune the the middle string to the um to the to the tuner and then you tune the uh, the outer strings to the to the middle string by by ear okay. basically eliminate the beats ah. and then you go through up and down it and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway. <laughs> so I guess it's another thing I got to scratch off. Yeah. Unless you go to Princeton, they can teach you how to tune pianos at Princeton. Well, it takes make four sense. years. Why am I going to take that class, Brad? <laughs> just, I mean, come on. Um, just think that through. Franz, could you talk a little bit about, maybe people aren't familiar about the premise of the book and sort of how it came together? Yeah, the book is called The Humorless Ladies of Border Control. Um, and it's, it's about... Um, uh, the, the subtitle is Touring the Punk Underground from Belgrade to Ulaanbaatar. Um, and it covers a bunch of years where I was doing a, a bunch of touring in the, f- in the, f- in the post-communist world, um, from Eastern Europe, uh, across Russia and Ukraine, Mongolia and China. Um, we ended up leaving the China chapter off just so it would be slightly more conceptually unified as a post-communist Slavic world. Um, but that's, that's it that's what the book is you know it's 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 tour diaries plus right so it's it's the the touring experience plus sort of journalistic talking to the the people who were um putting on diy shows in these places and people who were making music and what their lives were like and what what it meant to them to be doing that kind of work in the places they were living and then also sort of engaging with the literary history of those places so you you can't really write about for example traveling on the Trans-Siberian Railroad without acknowledging on some level that people have written about that before you know from mm-hmm. Paul Thoreau to Chekhov right, so right, right. um and 
my interest and engagement with the Slavic world up until that point had been entirely basically through through books through getting into Russian literature as a high schooler, as many people do, and then getting into Balkan music um, in the great New York Balkan music explosion of 2000 <laughs> and 2001. Um, and so a lot of the experience for me was going to these places and comparing my impressions of them that I had gotten through these books um, to the... My, my experience of actually being there and so so for you know for each each place i was going i would have a book or two that was sort of uh my i guess i would say fellow traveler if that wasn't too loaded a term in this context um <laughs> but um yeah rebecca west for the balkans and eva hoffman for eastern europe and uh christine for russia and so on and i so that wasn't i i had read your interest in accordion came from a German side of your family. Is is that your background, or did you have a family background in Eastern Europe at all? I have a complicated ethnic background. Okay, <laughs> Habsburg mongrel is sort of my my shorthand for it. I don't know what that means. Yeah, <laughs> well, <clears throat> the uh, the pre World War One Eastern and Central Europe, the Habsburg Austro Hungarian okay. Empire was, which so my father's side. Um, were ethnic German, uh, at least one one branch of it were ethnic Germans who lived in what is now Romania, but was then Hungary. Gotcha. Um, and then on my mother's side, it, there's it's uh, I, I believe ethnic Italians who lived on the Greek island of Crete. Wow. Um, so and and then there's some Basque in there, but yeah, there was at least at least one branch of the of the family came from northern Romania, southern Hungary area, and then uh, made their way through Germany too. To, to the United States. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny when you go back far enough in, in European history and you start to see... That's why I, I don't even understand nationalism at some point because of the movement, the constant like movement and blurring of lines like through the last you know few hundred years where you know I didn't realize until recently that I could be Czech pretty easily. I thought I was Polish this whole time. And then I saw an old map that had the region my family's from in Czech Republic. It's just... You have the added complication of being Ashkenazi Jew. Well, right. So... Who knows what we were running from at the time. (laughs) I mean, the very concept of of nationalism or like a state based on national identity is is relatively recent. Like, post 1848 and and politically speaking, post-World War I. Is that right? Yeah. Even like a like th- that would go for like a, a Russian or a Chinese or something like that. They would well. These no were f- giant imperial mm. uh, operations, right? Multi right. multi ethnic imperial <clears throat> political situations. Right, so, right, right. You know the Habsburg Empire. You know, combined everything from from Germans. You know, to the everything that we could think of as as Eastern European states now, or like the the Russian Empire contained you know all the the central asian states and the crimean tatars and um you know the ukrainians and the poles and and so on so do you think like nationalism as it stands now is just is more you know political and cultural than it is ethnic at some point well that's complicated (laughs) (laughs) the the you know the, the 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 kind of nationalism we're talking about is based on this fantasy that you can draw a line 
Yeah, and right. include within it only the people that subscribe to a certain identity, and exclude the people that don't subscribe. That sure you don't think subs- feel like subscribe to that identity, and that's just a functional impossibility. Right. You know that's that's what that's what we see in in the Middle East is these these arbitrary lines that you know some people got assigned to a country and some people didn't, and the Kurds didn't get a country assigned to them and you know these things persist right it's 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 something that has been just like fresh on my mind trying to identify like what white nationalism is and the idea that you could see somebody like less than a hundred years ago from russia italy and ireland all marching in the same group under the same nationalistic title is just confusing to me well, and the, I, I can't even understand it right now, and what what its definition is, you know. Nationalism based on an ide- on an identity, as, on a self assumed identity, is is a reaction to feeling powerless, right? right. So the, the 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 national movements of the late nineteenth century were about uh, having some sort of self determination in the context of these imperial frameworks. Mm. So you know. White identity politics is something that that comes up whenever people who worry about that sort of thing feel their political place being threatened. Right. Makes sense. Their place in the political hierarchy. Speaking of that type of thing, I I stumbled upon a a really interesting story of when you were in Mongolia Uh and you stumbled across like this manly Olympics with like only manly sports and just can you can you tell a little bit about that story because it was, seemed really interesting yeah so i was traveling with my wife at that point and we happened to be in mongolia during the part of the year where they they hold the nomad olympics which celebrated <laughs> celebrates the what they consider the three manly arts um which is ar- excuse me uh archery horse racing and wrestling of course um there was a fourth one <laughs> that, that was uh, <laughs> that was sheep ankle bone shooting which oh, was like sort of tar- it was like if you can imagine a combination of of dominoes with uh darts maybe okay you're sort of flicking these little bones at a distance and trying to hit a target that was that was sort of the old man sport that took place in a tent but it was part of the same same olympics okay um <laughs> Yeah, we went to the opening ceremonies, which was in the um, was in the soccer stadium in Ulaanbaatar, and there were a couple kids. There was a there was a kid in uh, there was there's one kid who was like in boots and braces, skinhead kind of get up, and another one who was in a a, a Nazi uniform, so okay. parading around the stadium, and we're just like, what the hell is this? You know, yeah. looked it up, and it and and it turns out there is a there is a um, Small but muscular neo-Nazi movement among young Mongolians, huh. uh, which is a little complicated, you know, when you when you try to parse it, because you know, by no one's definition of Aryan purity would Mongolians qualify sure. for. But their their a- their aim is basically against um, uh, against Chinese encroachment on Mongolia. There's a lot of like humiliating mongolian girls who they think are sleeping with chinese men and that sort of thing like racial purity of mongolians oh okay so they just spun the movement and just mongolian purity rather than aryan that's right yeah okay 
So yeah. did you, did you win all the events? Yeah. How did you fare? <laughs> I, you know, it's not something I like to put in my CV. I don't want to brag or anything, but I'm a multi-gold medalist in multi-gold wrestling. Uh, I had a question, too. Um, I, you know, I read that Paul Thoreau book about the Trans-Siberian, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I've seen a lot of films about it. I mean, it's one of those things I've always wanted to do, but I don't really know anyone that's done it. I mean, what... What was that experience? Would you recommend that experience? I mean, how much like prep did you have to put into it? Well, it's just a it's just a train. Yeah, you know? it's it's just a train you can get on and you can ride and get off. And <laughs> it like, seems like so daunting for some reason. Like, it's no more daunting than buying a cross country Amtrak ticket. Really? Yeah, it helps if you know Russian. <laughs> yeah, but you don't Which, have I mean, to. <laughs> cross country Amtrak can be daunting in its own <laughs> right. There's a bunch of things that could come up in that in that trip yeah i mean i recommend the experience of of taking sleeper cars on a train uh, uh, railroad yeah. sleeper cars which are really not much of a thing in the united states but it's a wonderful way to travel in the post-soviet sphere they have a a, a great rail line that they built you know in the 30s and 40s and um still works and uh <laughs> it's kind of a comfy way to go it has a little bit of the rhythm of so I did I did this for a month in Russia. This is how I got around on tour. And it has a little bit of the rhythm of a tour bus hmm. because you sleep in these bunks, you wake up in the town, get off, the promoter picks you up, you have all day to sort of bum around, play the show, they deliver you back to the train after huh. the show and you you know go back to sleep on your bunk and wake up in the next town is there like uh water sir like can you shower on there and stuff like that no 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 no. um there i mean there's there's three classes okay um there's the we usually took second class which is you're in a compartment with four bunks two lower and two upper bunks Mm -hmm. um there's plots cart which is an open cart with just you know twenty twenty five bunks full of strangers, right? That's a little more rowdier, little you're you know a lot more drunks, sure, you know, but cheaper. Yeah. And then first class, you can you can get a compartment to yourself if you feel like splurging. But yeah, usually second class is fine. You get a bunk and you get um, it's it, it's just it, yeah, it's just sort of a, a flat vinyl bunk that folds down. Right. Um, you get some some bedding and a and a. And a pillow, and and you sleep, and the you know the train lulls you to sleep. It's yeah. it's it's quite nice. Does it stop often? Like how many? Depends where you are. Yeah, uh, and you know the farther east you go in Siberia, the distances are so far. In many cases, there were several cases where it was like play the show, s- spend the night on the train, spend all the next day on the train, Whoa. spend another night on the train before wow. you went, got to the next city. Crazy, and that's just sort of lovely because you don't, you know. No internet distraction. Just huh. stare out, watch the country go by, take some notes, read a book, drink sure. a beer, take a nap. I mean, yeah, just, yeah. it's a really relaxing way to go. Yeah, that sounds like vacation. I mean, in the same way that tour is a vacation. In which case, in which sense of not really. <laughs> Jonah and I like to frequent the uh, Russian-Turkish baths yes. here. Did you get to use any of those in your travels out there? Not so much on tour, but when on... My wife's family and her research is in Ukraine, so I'm I'm there a lot, and, okay. and definitely whenever we're there, we're doing a lot of banya there. Yeah, I wonder. <clears throat> I met a guy the last time I was there, so I hadn't realized there's very special times at the Russian Turkish baths 
for some co-ed time, some female only, some male only. And this one time I'm sitting there talking and a guy very forward and sweet to me. And I thought he was hitting on me. And it turns out he's just very forward and he's Michael Keaton's stunt double. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and I happened to just be sweating. Wait, like Batman? No, like Birdman. Wow. Like recent. And then told me a great story <laughs> about his tattoo and like the the trippy things that led to his tattoo and, and things of that nature. And it Did he bear me, a physical resemblance to Michael Keaton? No. No, he must I mean, have had a similar build. Maybe in, in posture, but I've never sat shirtless next to Michael Keaton either. <laughs> Regretfully, I've never done this. I don't know. But my neighbor, I, I live next to what used to be like Russian tenement housing, and now it's just mostly Russian people who rent apartments. Um, and he said that there's no generals in the banya. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, like, we're all just cool in there. No three tiers, none of that. Like, you could be rubbing elbows with Michael Keaton's stunt double and you wouldn't even yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, me, we've been there and there have been like pro athletes. Like yeah, you figure hockey out, player one hockey time. Hockey player one time. Yeah. But I never know what's like Bretsky. the... Well, a lot of Russians and Scandinavians in, in yeah. hockey world. I, I, just, I, don't, I never know what the, what's good form in speaking to people in there. I think, you know what I, mean? it, like, I think it depends on the room. You got to read the room. Am I just supposed <laughs> to imagine everyone clothed? No, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I'm like kind of a regular there now. So I feel yeah. like the people, I like, will kind of just insert myself in conversation. I feel like everyone there generally is pretty friendly. Yeah, there are a lot of, but if you get too friendly, all of a sudden some like older woman will start like putting something on your feet or like something weird will start happening like that. You'll get an oatmeal bath before you know it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> is that what you call I don't it? Know, Benny. You've had a different Brad, experience than me. Us, I know. Uh, I don't know why. You will someday. Uh, so, Franz, we have a segment on this uh, podcast called Mystery Friend. Mystery Friend. Okay. Uh, and uh, basically, Mystery Friend. We, we reached out to a friend of yours, <laughs> and uh, we asked him to to tell a story or. Uh, Ask a question and then you can do it and then guess which friend of yours it was. It could be a bandmate, could be an ex bandmate, could be a friend. Um, and the question well, you already told me you were talking to Andrew recently. I did talk to Andrew recently, but that doesn't mean that that's who it is. Okay. But it could be. Could be. It could be. Um, man, I feel okay. I'm going to do this anyways. Uh, Mystery. One time in England, <laughs> the drummer for the Hold Steady and a bass player from another band tried to break a picnic table only using their jumping skills and their back. Hint, it was a festival. Second hint, they were both wasted. Who do you think that was? <laughs> that was Andrew. That was Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I kind of blew this you already. Gave it away. Oh. I blew it earlier. Yeah, But I would have guessed it. But still, mystery I should have talked to Craig and had like a decoy question. Mystery friend. Yeah. Mystery friend. Um, <laughs> it was an anticlimactic one. Yeah, that was, yeah, a, that was a pretty bad one. Reading, Reading or Leeds. Reading or Leeds. Yeah. And so they jumped into a picnic table? They, they were like, do, do, what, what's the wrestling move where you fall with your elbow oh, the, uh, and your hip? Oh, uh, Don't you guys know no. this? Uh, no idea. Yeah, that's... Yeah, what is that? This, don't look at me. <laughs> I gave up on wrestling. Like I feel like as people listening to, who are into wrestling listening They're to this are like, like losing their minds. Yeah. Anyway, Someone that's what they were doing. Just gotcha. Went, just dropping themselves nerds. on this. Stephen <laughs> Smith. So like, oh yeah, this is <laughs> where we meet Stephen. What is that? But power drop? No. The, the, the cranium cracker? 
I don't know. Man. I don't know. I'm not a wrestler. No. You're not a wrestler. I'm definitely not. No. We're all hats here. <laughs> the other witness to that would have been this guy C6 Steve, if you guys remember that. Oh, that yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. He was hanging around that back- okay. the backstage area with his wife. That's cool. <laughs> I wanted to ask, like, you know, I was around when the World Inferno thing was starting, you know, around New Brunswick and... I don't think people realize, like, the completely, like, unique, subversive nature of what happened with World Inferno, where, like, that didn't, to me, like, that didn't come out of, I mean, I guess Sticks and Stones kind of had, like, a thing that was different, but to me, this didn't come out of, like, a scene. It kind of, like, created a scene, and all of a sudden, like, where most of me and my friends are, you know, singing along to, like, hardcore bands and going crazy... We find ourselves like dressed up in like tuxes, yeah. like on the same night, like drinking forties <clears> and like <throat> you know, it just had this whole like specific vibe. And I, you know, when I look back on it, it, it seems so like unique and special to me. And I kind of was curious if you could fill me in on like just how that came to pass. Like, I I don't know that I'm going to have necessarily more special insight. I mean, I think I agree. It's a really special band. And um, the, the definitely the scene that grew up around it. Yeah, it was it was a it was a it was an if you build it they will come kind of situation. Right. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like you're a ska band. You insert yourself into a ska scene, and there's a built-in crowd or hardcore yeah. like that. It's it definitely built from the from the ground up. I mean, I was the I I was. It, part of the band, I think, for the most dramatic part of that, yeah, you know, where it went from like playing for twenty people at Brownies sure. to to selling out Bowery Ballroom, yeah, yeah, um, and that was really, I'm, I mean, that had a lot to do with with early internet culture, not early internet culture, but like early fandom internet culture, right, right, right? like message boards and MySpace and that whole that whole thing. There were a couple people who were really active making world inferno happen on that in that world um i don't know i don't know what to say about (laughs) it exactly it was it it's it was a really special band in a really special time well i guess the coolest things like that are just sometimes really visceral and not totally thought out yeah it's a band that's gone through a couple stages there was an early stage that was you know the post dicks and stone stage with jack and scott and and their crew of basically whoever could show up and had a you know brass instrument that they once played in high school band right and then there was the period with a that had a really long consistent lineup where the musicality was really high and what was that like that 2000? was 2000 to 07 approximately like myself sure. and peter hess and eula yeah, yeah lucky yeah. Mm-hmm. ben koch mara dan bailey um semra on percussion and that was that was a real crew yeah you know and then there was a, a transitional period, and I, I think it, it seemed like it, it might not survive, and now it's it's sort of resurrected with another another lineup now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. Everybody's got who's who's been in music for a while has their has their one band. I feel like that's that's like the special family sure. period where they really got their got on their feet and discovered how to do it and yeah had the had their adventures and definitely that's 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 the band for me just an odd mix of timing and people and yeah places and 
I mean, one of the things about that period of the band was that, and I think this is rare, especially for a band that that was that's that big. It was a nine piece band. I would say six or seven of those nine people were were writing, were mm. songwriters, you know, or yeah, could wow. have fronted their own band. Sure. So it was this real explosive mix of like people's creativity coming together and performance coming together. Like everyone on stage was encouraged to act like they were the front person right <laughs> was there someone where that would like was there someone that was the impetus for sort of that like well it's jack's vision yeah yeah i mean the whole thing he really you know i i think a lot about this because it wasn't clear to me at the time but he was the guy he was like an older brother figure for me i think just mm -hmm. really he had an he it, as someone who came in, came, you know, I I grew up in really small, like rural New Hampshire, and came down here wanting to like be a musician, but I didn't have a clear idea of what I was going to do. It's just like let's join a bunch of bands and see what sticks, or like hadn't come up through a scene that taught you how to be cool, you know, and how to carry yourself. Right. And so joining that band and and like he presents you essentially with a ready-made kit mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> of like here's here's how to dress here's how to act here's what's cool here's what's not cool yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's that was you know i had to grow out of some of that stuff huh. but it was certainly a good starting point huh that's interesting did you guys tour um did you guys tour europe a lot yeah did you guys do any tours with ingo yeah he, yeah yeah he was our guy yeah he was my guy for my band that era too yeah i have He's also still doing it yeah rented gear from ingo yeah and even slept at his house yeah right. hamburg yeah he drove yeah. us around he's like the punkest guy i think i've ever met like so legit like, yeah well it. you guys to a fault I yes yes you know <laughs> yes well, there is definitely like i don't think if i rented like an ingo kit i knew for a fact like at least like two of my stands were gonna have like some mate like i had to bring tape from home like i just knew i knew i was gonna have to tape the shit out of something mm -hmm. yeah that's, but, that's you know. funk, man. but it was cheap too so like it's not easy to get around europe and if you can get around at that price right take it <laughs> one symbol down fuck it you guys you guys probably experienced this for your listeners this is a guy who when he wasn't on tour driving bands around in a sprinter slept in a sleeping bag at his own house so he wouldn't get used to comfort <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes i remember we were in a van and he was driving it and where there a window was supposed to be was just plywood yeah <laughs> like it was incredible yeah uh where yeah. is he from ingo um, hamburger i believe yeah, he's german yeah. yeah, well, Gunnar was Hamburg. Ingo, okay. Gunnar's in Bremen. Gunnar's in Bremen. That's right. Yeah, no, I think Ingo was Hamburg. I mean, this is a guy who had like basically every punk band for a yeah. generation toured Everyone. with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like mm -hmm. against me. Like, yeah, it was it was pretty wild. Like early two thousands. Yeah, guys like that are so punk rock, and it's like you know the thing that always bothers me is that. Like, if they were going to write some, like, book about punk in, like, that time, like, some, like, 19-year-old kid with Liberty Spikes is going to be on, like, the cover of it, and that's going to be, like, the face of it, and that's going to be, like, the one who got, like, the girls and the money, maybe, no, maybe not money, but girls and stuff like that, or boys, and, and, like, there's guys, there's always, like, dudes like Ingo, 
for like the fucking grinders. Like none of it would exist. Yeah. Without. Never made any money. Yeah. In fact, like definitely lost money. Yeah. Yeah. Would have probably turned down on multiple occasions <laughs> the opportunity of ever increasing his station make- even <laughs> yeah. the slightest little sure. bit. Sure. <laughs> yes. People will never know. I yeah. maybe that could we're be talking a cool book, it. like the unsung heroes book. Sounds like a doc. Yeah. yeah. That would be a great one. I mean, how did you kind of link up with uh, Hold Steady, and that, how did that kind of come together? Well, that also came through World Inferno. I mean, World Inferno had played with Lifter Puller uh, at, like, the Fireside Bowl or something. Okay. And there was sort of a mutual appreciation. We had one of their... We had their entertainment and arts EP in the, in the van. Um, they had broken up. They all didn't think they were going to do music anymore. Craig moved to New York, and he was working for a company that was at the time called DCN, Digital Club Network. I think later sort of morphed into eMusic slash The Orchard eventually. But um, they were sort of ahead of the technology. Their, Their whole thing was they put up a little camera in rock clubs all around the country, and you were supposed to be able to stream shows. Mm. But this, you know, we're talking 01, 02, people's oh. streaming capacity wasn't enough <laughs> for anyone to stream live video. And, there, you know, nobody had that kind of no. thing at home. Um, so what they were going to do also was, was branch out into putting out live records. Mm. And so one of the... Uh, that's basically how I got to know Craig, is he approached me as the representative of World Inferno, as the, as, as the A&R guy from DCN saying... Huh. We want to do a World in Front of Live record. Okay. So we worked together on that. Um, and then during the process of that, um, he was like, yeah, I'm putting this band together. It's not that serious, but we're, we're making a record. You and, and Hess want to come and, come and play on a couple tracks. And that was almost killed me, the first Hold Steady record. Hmm. Um, and then I would sort of jump up and play with them when they'd played in New York that year after that record came out. And then when they were getting ready to record Separation Sunday, they were like, actually, do you want to join the band? And about half of that record was written already, so I came up with parts, and then we wrote the rest of the record and and recorded that, and then it was sort of off to the races. Hmm. Um, And then, yeah, 2005, most of 2006, I was trying to be in both bands with increasingly um, not as good (laughs) results. I mean, because I was super committed to World Inferno, you know that was my band. That was a way that was a way bigger band at the time than than Hold Steady, and right. it was sort of like sure. those were my people, and it was sort of like more in line with my aesthetic musically. And yeah, but eventually it just it just got to be too much, and Craig was like, "Listen, you got to make a decision." Hmm. So yeah, I saw I saw you, one of the anniversary Hold Steady shows you did with Laura Stevenson. Yeah, we brought her up. It was so great. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you could <clears throat> fill me in a, a little, like it's something I know so little about, but the program you do through Columbia or still do the anti-social music. Oh, that's it? not through Columbia. We did, th- that was like the very first concert we did, oh, okay. on, we did on the Columbia campus in 2000 because a couple of the people had gone there. Gotcha. Um, but no, the anti-social music is a, is a nonprofit, uh, composer performer collective right. that I formed with some other people gosh 17 years ago now um and uh it's still going i'm less involved with it basically when i when i when i was on started being on the road all the time i just didn't have time to write 
chamber music, you know, because that so so involves sitting at a at a piano for hours at a time. But. Right. So I mean, is it is it like uh, like alternative composition for that world? It seems like it's a little like yeah, basically. For so that it was world. like people who. You know, I got a degree in composition. I knew some other people did too, but that that world of academic composition, excuse me, um, you know, you write these pieces and then you mail them out into the void and try and get somebody to play them. And meanwhile, we were all playing in bands and doing doing that, just like m- making it happen. Yeah. And it didn't seem like there was anything stopping us from doing that with the chamber music as well, cool. right? Because we knew we knew performers, we knew com- who weren't playing and we knew composers who weren't getting played right so we got together you know it the, the core of it was usually around 10 or 12 people um and we would put on twice a year concerts of all new all new works all, all new and all premieres. of your unique compositions yeah and cool. and we solicited you know work from all over the the sphere of people who are doing cool new stuff whose whose sort of attitude was simpatico with ours which was not to you know not you know, black turtlenecks and tuxes in a recital hall right. but you know we would do we would do the chamber music shows in the you know at at north six or at hamilton street or sure you know all the same places that that the bands were playing um and it was you know that music's not for everybody but it's not meant to be like a lot of music's not for everybody. <laughs> sure. yeah. So yeah. At least I'm pretty proud of it. I'm, pre- yeah. I'm you know, we premiered 200, 200 ish works of, of, wow. of new, you know, for lack of a better word, classical music. So cool. Um, and it's still going. It's Am still going. Yeah. yeah. And then we did it. We started doing a commissioning project where we would approach people from outside that world who we thought had really interesting musical ideas, but didn't necessarily have the technical capacity or the training to uh, to 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 write for the kind of instruments that we could offer. Oh, okay. So we would say, listen, well, if you're interested, we'll partner with you and we'll use the what we have to 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 if you're interested in writing for this kind of a group. Mm-hmm. So we did we did something like that with His Name is Alive. Uh, we did something like that with Dilek. Mm-hmm. Um, who d- we did a, re- a really amazing piece with them um, and some other, some other groups like that. So, yeah. That's cool. It's kind of like a DIY, almost punk rock version of In That World. That's exactly what it is. It's, yeah. re- it's just recreating, yeah, it's recreating the, the commissioning and, and collaboration model of you know from from lincoln center down sure. to is there a very like i mean i i again know very little about it but i have to imagine there's a pretty snobby elitist upper tier in this in this kind of world where it's a little tough to crack that that um that world yeah yeah you imagine correctly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean one of the things in the last 20 years has is is that that model that we were i still feel like that we were one of the pioneers of has become an institution in its own right 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 there's a generation of people who grew up like we did trained as as jazz players or classical musicians but who didn't see, who don't see the the genre different also were into you know black metal and don't see that genre differentiation there are there's a you know so so labels like new amsterdam and and now venues like national sawdust um you know there's a lot of ensembles doing that sort of thing the you know post-genre classical music um 
you know, for, for good or ill. I mean, I think they're, they're, they're those, obviously the ones that have succeeded are, are good at playing within that system, you know, right. in the same way that bang on a can a generation before was good, is good at playing within that system. You know, these are like people who still went to Juilliard, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and, and our stuff, I, you know, antisocial music, I, I think it was, was always a little rougher around the edges. Yeah. So cool. But I'm, I'm proud of the legacy of that group. <laughs> I know where to start if I'm going to crack into that world now. I'm going to start with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. What do we, what do you wear? Like if they, Whatever if like the wear. upscale ones, they have like coattails or, you know, they look like penguins. Well, what like do you wear I when you play get, a show? Well, just like black stuff. <laughs> like black. I mean, I guess pretty much what I'm wearing right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I might put on shorts. I mean, I would one. wear a suit, but that's just because I wear a suit when I perform. Yeah. But ev- people just wear whatever they wear. You would know? you feel weird not wearing a suit when you play? Yeah, I would. Like it feels like putting on something like going to work kind of. It's more like, um, you know, going into the phone booth and putting on the Superman outfit. Yeah, right. It's yeah. it's about getting into characters psychologically. Sure. You know, because I'm not necessarily as performative in in regular life as I am on stage, mm-hmm. and so that's a way of demarcating the edge of the stage, yeah. being like, now I'm in character as as Mr. Outgoing, Mr. Cool. Talkative, Mr. Entertainer, um, and then you know when I take it off, I can go back to being. But I've tried to play a couple shows in just jeans and a t-shirt, you know, rarely. Yeah. But I have tr- I have done it, and I just I, it's much more. I don't know. It doesn't feel this. I don't feel like I can perform at the same level. Now, maybe that's, you know, that's just what I'm used to. You know, it's a way people deal with state performance anxiety in all kinds sure. of different ways. That's, yeah. that's just a crutch. I get diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. Just a shit a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, have you, <laughs> are, story, are you, that's, <laughs> yeah. sorry, I'm just trying to change the subject to literally anything. <laughs> uh, uh, I feel like when we talked, maybe were you a while ago? Were you saying you were working on a second book, possibly, or yeah, is that I've something got, you're still kicking around? I got two book projects. One is that's probably going to come first is is a novel that I'm a, a, I don't know fifty pages from the end of a, of a first draft of, and then there's a nonfiction thing that I talked to Benny for mm-hmm. that um, that sort of is on hold based on I I did got about 90 hours of interviews that needed to be transcribed <laughs> uh, and there's only so much bandwidth at any given time I'm actually one of them <laughs> oh nice yeah yeah um but that's you know that's still sort of inching along too cool do you transcribe stuff yourself or you send it out usually? well i did the first couple and and immediately i it's, said this is not <laughs> something i want to be spending my time doing i did it for a couple hours today it is one of my least favorite things to do it's awful. oh they're yeah. pro transcribers they're 100 percent are yeah there yeah. are yeah. absolutely for journalists yeah especially. what does it cost to get that done i the place it's expensive about yeah. it's like a dollar a minute it's a dollar a minute that's a place i use a dollar a minute if i'm really busy i'll send it to but they don't they're like try to get someone that understands the field you're in but yeah. like for music they'll like get a lot of stuff wrong like bands and people's names and like then it'll just say unintelligible and i'm like yeah like keep like i can you because know it's, it's a like, term like a music yeah term? like yeah i i mean this is a one site i use but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i did find a woman who who's pretty who's good and who does it cheap, but it's just like every time I have a spare hundred bucks, I'll get another one done. You yeah, know, yeah, that sort of thing. And there's a there's a couple good programs now, but you still have to. 
and it's what's the what's the one i can't remember what it's called i tried one out that sort of works but you still have to go through something and edit it and it takes almost as long yeah yeah and and you still have to listen to yourself talk which is the worst (laughs) so so yeah i feel like we should be there with all the virtual reality stuff we have transcribing like that should be easy have us there fully it's just a question of of because they're almost there with just the intelligibility. It's, the, it's well, Google they, Translate is insane. Yeah, they just they, they they need to get to the point where like what you were saying, where you would they would assign you somebody that knows the field. They need to get to the point where they can figure out what a human being would say, yeah. right? Which is what they're working on. And then for Google to do it, you'll have to submit your soul to their matrix. You know, yeah, yeah, I think I've done that. When you sign up for Gmail, you, yeah, you click <coughs> accept. Was that it? Yeah. Wow. That's fine print. I didn't realize I did it yep. that many years ago. Oh, yeah. Shit. <laughs> uh, what about musically? What are you, what's kind of your, what are you working on right now? Uh, well, I, so I did a bunch, I did some composition stuff this past year. There's a choreographer named Allison Chase that I've been working with the last couple of years. Um, she was a member of Palabolus for a long, she was a founding member of Palabolus, if, if that means anything to your listeners. <laughs> but, um, she, I, yeah, I wrote a couple dance scores for her, um, one of which premiered last year and one of which this summer. Um, and then there was a, I wrote a choral song cycle. Um, do you know this artist Fly? No. She's from like East Village squatter, 80s and 90s kind of world. Mm. She had a, she used to illustrate for New York Press. I think she had a thing in Maximum Rock and Roll for a while. Oh, she has spelled Fly, F O Y? Fly, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, her signature series is this portrait series she calls Peeps. It's basically head and shoulders portraits that she does of people in her, in her world, people who sort of are coming through, you know, either, whether they're artists and musicians that you heard of or just like whoever's staying at C-Squat that she <laughs> finds interesting. Um, and she'll interview them while she's drawing their portrait and sort of transcribe parts of their conversation in the negative space around around the head and shoulders. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I went through her archives. This was a bunch, a bunch of years ago I started working on this. I went through her archive and picked out some of them and edited down the transcripts, her trans- transcripts of their interviews and used that as a text to set for, for choir. Hmm. Um, and, um, and finally got finished that last summer and premiered it this summer and, and just put it up on Bandcamp yesterday. Nice. So that's that's the very freshest thing. Wow. I mean, do you feel like when you're on tour and like there's a, an opening band or someone, like I feel like if I was you, I would be so snobby. Like, is it okay? Can you listen to music <laughs> and not be like, from like a compositional standpoint, this is terrible, but I still like it? It's it's a complicated question. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Because um, there's, it's not, it's not even from a, from a compositional standpoint. It's a, it's a, because there's, there's really dumb music that I love a lot, sure. you know? Um, it's more like I, I know how all the tricks work. Mm. And so I have to trick myself when I'm, when I'm trying to write music myself, I have to trick myself. Um, that's one of the reasons for a bunch of years why I was picking up new instruments all the time. Uh, because I can't just sit down at a piano and play a G chord and a C chord and be like, Hey, I just wrote a song G and C, but I, (laughs) if I was just learning to play banjo and I just learned how to play G and C, Uh, I can rediscover (laughs) how cool G and C sounds. Right. right? So it's Mm -hmm. a way of like getting around my, my, uh, 
snobby elitist uh, uh, barrier. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's 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 a problem once you do anything for long enough, right? To right. to to retain to retain your 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 amateur's enthusiasm mm. for it once you're once you're a professional. And you can or almost not- relate that just to life. <laughs> yeah. You like like kids almost have just an amateur's enthusiasm. They don't for just, everything. For everything. And eventually like you just get to the point where you see too much for what it is. <laughs> no- <laughs> yeah, I mean it's also like for example as a as a piano player in rock bands, right? Like I I play on people's records. They they mail them to me. I'll play on you know play on them and send them back or like come in more and more of that instead of actually going into the studio, usually or accordion. So usually there's there's three things that they want from me. It's either pounding <laughs> piano, organ pads, or like some kind of Tom Waitsy Pogsy accordion. <laughs> right, right. Like I know that that's I, I'm yeah. totally typecast. We know the guy. I, we know the guy. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's that's one of those like. Do I really got to do this again? You know, I know that's what's going to make them happy. Yeah. If I send them something else, that's not what they want. Um, so that's like, and and for those sort of purposes, yeah, you know, I'll 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 do that, sure. Yeah. But in the context of being in a band, sometimes that's also what they want. Mm. And if it's a project where I have personal buy-in, I really am resistant to just playing an organ pad. And it's like, mm. what else can I do that's a little different that we haven't done before? Like, what, you know, how can we stop from from plagiarizing ourselves or just doing, like, the easy thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not always an easy sell. Well, it's interesting because, like, when you, when you mention it like that, it would lead me that you'd be more comfortable in, in writing just for yourself. Um, you may where, notice that I did that for a bunch of years. Well, and then, <laughs> well, and then I saw in another interview that you said the process of releasing material is like frustrating and humiliating. Yeah. Um, like that was a direct quote from you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I and, stand by that. Yeah, and uh, like, what is it about? Like, do you find when you would release something with World Inferno or, or Hold Steady where you were just like a piece of the puzzle, did you find it as uh, exposing as you do when you're releasing your own stuff like that? Well, if you release something under your name and somebody doesn't like it, they're criticizing you by name. Right. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> no one's like these you know, if someone did- organ parts were dog shit on this record. Like uh, that I mean there happen. were there was a constituency that felt like keyboards ruined the hold steady. What? <laughs> there uh, was that constituency. Germans? Those people have been, have been people that love guitars. Have been lost to history. But yes, there are guitar chauvinists out there who I'm believe sure. that, that keyboards do not belong in true oh, and roll. There are guitar <laughs> chauvinists out there, huh? <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> You know what I mean? No, people I who do. are like no. guitar is the, the guitar oh, is no, the no, number no. one instrument. I'm right. with you I, like yeah. times a hundred on this. I yeah. mean, if I have to stare at a snobby guitar player's butt again <laughs> <Yeah>. another, <laughs> I mean, it's basically my life. Yeah, it's staring at the asses of, the, of chauvinist. <laughs> you know, no, not chauvinist. <laughs> I hope not. Now. That's how you get paid until you go to Princeton and learn. <laughs> oh, is that how I do it? Yeah. Oh, this is my angle. The back angle. <laughs> um, so I, I hate citing Wikipedia for anything. Um, Why? 
Just because I feel like it's like really hacky. Huh. Um, or it, it always whenever I say something Wikipedia, it's, 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 it just sounds like I don't know. It's, I know. it's a good starting point. It's a good it's starting point. I know how point. quickly your hand gets cut off if you actually put up false information on there. That's, you think? Oh, I know. I have a friend who does this intentionally, and he's had two separate uh, servers blocked from oh, wow. from Wikipedia for fucking with it too much. <laughs> I once, I have only once had a Wikipedia page, and it was Sidney Poitier's uh, copy and pasted under my name, <laughs> and it didn't make it very long. It was <laughs> it a couple hours. How long? Couple hours. Yeah, That's couple it. hours. Couple hours. And no, and still, I don't have a Wikipedia page. That was the only time it happened. Very bad, but I'll, I can't make my own. I feel ashamed. I don't can. Yeah, I think they don't want you to do that. I think uh, probably most people with Wikipedia pages who are drummers probably make their own. I There's definitely. I think some yeah. of them. Might I know at least one drummer room. who assiduously edits his own. Wikipedia yeah, really. Page. Yeah. 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 I, and all I do is <laughs> I just I just Google it all the time to see if like someone somewhere was just like, oh, this guy's done a bunch of stuff. I'll give him a link. You know, suck. I think a lot of people. I I feel like some it's bands and stuff. Some people like you're like this is so detailed. Like the detail is. This goes into your your same thing of like writing your goodbye letter. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. That's another trend that drives me insane. When some band's been together for like a year and their bass player leaves to go back to school and it's like this four page letter. Like (laughs) yeah, we've been asking this lately. What do you think (laughs) is the minimum criteria? like prerequisite you have to meet to be able to submit a goodbye letter like how much of a commitment do you have to call a press junket yeah to call yeah to do press about your exit like a full album and a a touring cycle i guess i feel like if people care they'll come to you and ask i think you need to be a founding member fucking that's it yeah end of story exactly exactly end of story or maybe there's like a ratio. Like if a band has like twelve records and you were on nine, that's like if Ron Wood left yeah, the Rolling Stones. That's legit. He could give a press. He sure. Could, he could give release a statement. Exactly. Well, yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I know that's going. Like, <laughs> so what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think is the minimum, bare minimum, to release a press junket about your release? I don't know, but in my experience, I would recommend if you're leaving a band, say nothing. Yeah. yeah, that's good advice. Just, just, just the Irish goodbye. <laughs> and, well, and this is sort of publicly. Like, I'm saying, <laughs> you know, you, you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta talk to your it's band good advice for <laughs> bands in general. I'm well, always, like, you don't have, nobody's, you don't have to release a statement. No, people, right. it only causes don't. trouble. How it many only bands, causes trouble? How many bands? Trust me, have released a statement. Oh, we're breaking up, and it was foolish. Oh, foolish. Because if they just shut up for three years, they could have just even come back and play. Social media is self-importance. Everyone's their own. Everyone's branding themselves all the time and how could if if you have 12 people who were interested you must feed your 12 with a statement that's that's how it goes yeah i was friends with a band that broke up and they were uh they they were you know big enough to to headline music hall of williamsburg but you know not not huge and a couple years later i was talking to one of them it's like so are you guys gonna do a reunion show or anything like that and she was like we were big enough that people were sad when we broke up, but not big enough that they <laughs> yeah. would be excited for us to get back together. Wise. Very <laughs> yeah, wise. I thought that was a stupid. Wise words. That's, um, that's really a, a pr- very particular level yeah, to be at. That is true. And to know that that's where you're at. Sure. It's good um, to know. 
But on your page, on the Hold Steady page, it said that you you joined the band, rejoined in 2016. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I saw you play that show with them, Bows and Sheriff was just like the anniversary type thing. I mean, at this point, we're just doing like every step of the way. Yeah. With with everybody in the band, it's like, hey, do we want to do this other thing? Yeah, let's do it. Why not? You know, because the band, you know, to be honest, was not that active for almost two years before that. Sure. Like, it wasn't about me. Right. They they were taking some time off. Right. right? Yeah, Yeah. So I think, you know, it was the, they got... The way I, under- I assume it went down was they got an offer from Riot Fest for the ten year boys and girls thing, and and it went around and people were into it, and then they asked me, and I was into it, sure. and and it was just like you know baby steps, let's see how this goes, and it's yeah. been fine, great, that's cool. Um, I mean, really, it's been it's that that Brooklyn Bowl thing. We did a long weekend in Chicago earlier this year. We're doing the Brooklyn Bowl thing again next week. Oh, nice. And then, a, a long weekend in in london in march okay um so the you know the stakes are low in terms of a time commitment <laughs> which is nice i mean i'd imagine for someone you know like with family and has all this other stuff going on everybody's got stuff yeah. going on yeah. yeah craig's got his records i and- know I'm so bummed you know we we're supposed to do a podcast with john sampson <laughs> when mm-hmm. craig was in town at brad's house and i had jury duty ah. i had to cancel it Bummer. The judge didn't understand. <laughs> not, <laughs> not a weaker than. Not a we- Well, he he actually was a big propaganda fan, and not a weaker than fan. Uh, yeah, I think oh. that's why he put me on. Oh goodness! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Still mad. Still mad. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, hey. Thank you, Franz, so much for coming by. Uh, if you dug those stories. Pick up his book, The Humorous Ladies of Border Control, like we talked about on this podcast. He's, I think he's working on some other writing stuff. So, um, yeah, stay plugged into that. And, yeah, uh, obviously I don't need to promote the Hold Steady or World Inferno Friendship Society. Uh, if you've made it this far, you probably are a fan. Or if you're not, you should be. Yeah, check out the Hold Steady. They're definitely... Good band. Yeah. They're one of those bands that I think will appeal. They appeal to people who's not necessarily uh, Bruce Springsteen fans. Yeah, <laughs> and a Bruce Springsteen fan. Yeah, it's a tough balance. <laughs> What's funny that you mentioned Bruce Springsteen is because I met Franz through uh, Andrew, Andrew who used to play bass in Against Me, and his new band played at this place, uh, Cape Town, um, in Brooklyn. And I was talking to Andrew and. Uh, He's mentioned in Springsteen's biography. Really? Yeah. There's like a part where he's like, because I think his son is like an Against Me fan or something. And he's like, yeah, I met these guys in this band and uh, <laughs> whatever. And uh, Andrew is kind of this bearded guy, he played bass. <laughs> and so like, that's pretty crazy. I mean, like, I don't know if every member of the band, I don't know if, if Laura, if she was in there and everyone, but I know Andrew was mentioned specifically by name in Springsteen's memoir. Nice. Which is like, that's I feel something. like at that point, he's sort of like... <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So I have a racing connection between Andrew and Franz. I feel like without, without Andrew, I never would have met Franz. Franz would have never done the podcast. The whole course of our lives would be different. We wouldn't be sitting in your apartment right now talking about wow. it. Wow. 
Let that sink in for a second. I'm not, I'm not even sure I can, but I'll try. If you want to hear these types of um, deep existential issues, uh, you can become a patron. Yeah. Um, go to <laughs> patreon.com. I would say if you're still listening to this part of the podcast, you probably are a real fan. Yes, you are. And if you want to get a lot of this kind of rambling nonsense, yes. you can yes. get it. You will get bonus episodes uh, that may consist of me and Brad <laughs> talking about jury, jury duty. <laughs> Uh, maybe we'll do an episode about taxes or gardening. <laughs> Who knows what other t- juicy topics we will discuss. But no, uh, we, we did a, a bonus episode uh, last month. And, we got uh, another one coming we'll out We'll do soon. another one coming There's out outtakes. soon. There's outtakes. We're going to try gonna... to get the other guys from the podcast involved, maybe some special guests. There's going to be some video posted soon. Yes. Um, maybe some merchandise. And there will be merch. I'm waiting on a new logo. But as soon as we get that, I think we're going to have some new merch. Yes. So there'll be some... Some stuff sent out to the, to yeah. the real fans. We figured after six years, maybe we should try to, like, you know. Not go out of pocket? Not go totally <laughs> out of pocket. Yeah. It's patreon.com slash going off track. You can also get their VR website going off track. Um, you can also donate at venmo.com slash off track. My name should come up. Uh, so just make sure it does so you didn't misspell it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't don't donate to one of those fake going off track accounts. Yeah, screw those guys. Um, and yeah, thanks again to Pulse Music and Steve Rawalski for making us sound so good. And thank you, fans, and thank for you, still fans. being here. Yes, <laughs> and we'll be back with another podcast next week. So we will talk to you then. All right, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.